Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 11, Family Remains. Let's get this show on the road. I said this many, many episodes ago, the first time uh, we had humans as the villain. I was expecting this type of reveal much later. But despite making that call, this one still took me by surprise. No matter what your expectations are of this episode, they're going to be subverted. That's for sure. I have a little fun fact for you. This was my very first Supernatural episode that I watched. I feel like that's a really bad example episode to start with. I did not watch the series after watching that episode. (laughs) I wonder what my first one was. Like, I wonder if it really was the first episode or if I like got brought on board like episode three or four or something. I I really wonder. Because this was the very first episode that I watched, I sort of just like caught it on TV one day. I was like this is a horror show. Like, I don't want to watch this, you know? Like, there's there's an element of horror to it that's not really present in all of the episodes, particularly once you're past, like, half of season two. Honestly, when they first started, like, interacting with the air quote ghost, and, like, I, I think the two very specific moments I think of are when it's licking her hand and then the dog walks in and she has the realization that it's not the dog, And then the dog being dragged away with a bit of like a bloody trail. And it was just like, these are like ghost stories. My friends and I told each other when we were in like elementary school, like the, oh, I thought I was safe in my bed so I could feel my dog. And then you finally find the dog like strung up in the basement. And it's like, that wasn't the dog. I can lick too. crazy escapee said so. Like these were such tropey things that I thought that was this was going to be like in some way tied into like a ghost that was just imitating all the ghost stories it had heard before. Oh, a trickster ghost. I started listening to Monster of the Week, the podcast, and I listened to their episode on Hookman this morning. And they literally talk about the trope of, you know, the the the, the escapee licking the hand or the foot <laughs> of the person. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know... <laughs> I just find it funny. Would you have a recap for us today? You can count me down. Of course. Three, two, one, go. Brothers on another job. It seems like Dean's kind of just like, let's just keep doing jobs. I don't want to have to stop and have emotions. And Sam's all like, you should probably stop and talk about your emotions. And of course they don't. They go on the next job and it's a ghost that killed some old dude. And then their family's moving in and they're like, you shouldn't live in this house, family. It's um bad for you. And then they decide, no, we're going to live here anyways. But it is bad for them because there's a creepy ghost living in the walls who doesn't like adults for some reason. And then they're all like, well, we're ghost hunters, so we'll stop it because we're experts at dealing with ghosts. And then it's not a ghost. It's just a poor child who was tortured and surprise also her brother, it turns out. And unfortunately, the only way to stop murder children is to murder them first, even though they do get a few murders off themselves beforehand. Uh, but everything just is dealt with and the cops get called and the family seems to be OK time. 
that's the episode for you. It's kind of interesting how they they don't let Dean kill the girl, but they let Sam kill the brother. Yeah, I think it becomes clear at one point that there's going to be no coming out of this without some sort of murder. It's almost read to me like they were going to find a way not to like save them, but like they would die through their own like they had set a trap and they would get caught in their own trap or like they would wrestle over the gun and he would pull the trigger too soon and hurt himself or something. But just and like even having the father of the family kill the girl to save his family like that, I get. Was it Sam who killed the boy? With the gun while they're struggling in the basement and he reaches for the gun and blinds him with a flashlight and shoots him. Wasn't Dean in the basement? No, it's because Sam goes down to um, rescue the. uh... Oh, is it Dean that shoots him? I think it's Dean. I'm just going to say I didn't love this episode per se. So it's kind of already kind of just muddled in my brain of like more of the like less the the point and more of the conversation to be had about it. It even took me a while to get to remember this, but I was like, wait, no, it's Dean that goes down. And the only reason why I remember this is because I have a conversation point about that. <laughs> wow. The fact that I forgot who that was, because it was so, it wasn't really a talking point until right now. Anyways, we've weirdly gotten into story time before going to the long game. So <laughs> let me pull the Rochelle and rein us in. So I'm not sure that this has anything to do with the narrative long game, but definitely the meta or at the very least, like the production long game, because this is the same house or at the very least, the same exterior that was used in Faith in season one. And it was Reverend LaGrange's house. Well done for them on the I mean, the the setting, because it did not click for me at all. Like it would not have even registered, like, I guess, whether it be generic enough or the different camera angles used to kind of disguise it. Well done. But I do love kind of seeing that. Something that I had noticed a while ago and I was like, hold on, I'm sure this is it. So I went back and I opened faith and I just made sure to see like the shot of the house. And I'm like, yes, they just blocked a window there. And then it's the same house. (laughs) I like that. Ingenious. Good use. Good use of your resources. Good use of your resources. I mean, this is something that we're going to see over and over again. We're going to see them reuse different things. We've already seen them reuse sets. Like, this is just another example. Yeah, I'm sure some of those hotel rooms have been looped, for sure, at this point. So, there's also a mention of Scooby-Doo, and Dean is just smiling, and it's very cute and wholesome. There's a childness to Dean that I love, where, like, as much as he plays the big grown-up, the fact that, like, I think it really shined through a few episodes ago when he was eating all the Halloween candy. It wasn't just like picking out on food. It was very specifically like children's candy. It's like a connection to like the innocence and childhoodness. You know, this is also one of those things where I think Dean is at the age now where he can or he he would have the opportunity to kind of like go back and revisit his childhood and kind of make peace with it in his own way. No matter what that looks like, if that looks like eating a lot of Halloween candy or watching a lot of Scooby-Doo, like essentially like taking care of his own inner child. Oh, I love that for Dean. Something I love a little less for Dean, though, is that when Ted and Dean are in the house, they find the passage to get into the walls and Ted goes, do you smell that? And Dean replies every day. It sort of made me wonder if he meant that one of the forms of torture in hell was that it smelled really, really bad. And that he remembered the smell even now that he's back on Earth. 
that smell of like someone living in the walls for years of uncleanliness, that doesn't seem like a smell you would face on the regular. It wasn't like sulfur or something. This was like this was deeper. So I kind of tend to think you're on the right track with this one. Because like you, I was sort of wondering, well, you know, when was the last time that we saw them in the sewers? And it was probably in that episode in Skin when they're in the sewers and they're both very shocked at the smell. So that's kind of why I'm like, he wasn't, this isn't an everyday occurrence. And so that's why I kind of like strung that together. Given the rest of the conversation we have about hell this week, even more difficult to listen to. Mm. Shall we head to story time? So today, our theme is coping. Now, what do you think about when you think of coping? I immediately take a negative connotation from it. It's something you are doing to help you get past something else. And I mean, I guess it doesn't instinctively mean something negative. Like, you could say, I cope with a stressful day by playing video games, which is not necessarily a negative habit, but I think my default to coping is like drinking or other vices. Okay, well, that's that's definitely interesting. Let's have a quick look at what the word uh, comes from, I guess. So the word coping actually comes from a Greek word uh, that means a blow with a fist, essentially. So a punch. When the word made its way to English, it was a word to describe the action of meeting someone in battle or to come to blows. And so today it means to deal with something that's challenging. It doesn't necessarily have the negative connotation that you talked about, but everything that you mentioned are coping mechanisms, whether that's drinking, whether that's, uh, I mean, we'll see a lot of those things uh, in this episode, but um, Yeah, those are all coping mechanisms that help you deal with something very, very challenging that's currently happening in your life. The origin, despite not being negatively charged, still makes me think of like dealing with troubles, which I guess is really where the negative side comes from, that it's a troubling thing. Like this is kind of the goal of this, to try to look at our own preconceived ideas of a certain thing so that we can then discuss them with regards to the episode. I'm now challenged to see if we can find any positive coping mechanisms in this, I'm going to say, show, let alone episode. Oh, yeah, there's definitely some positive coping mechanisms there. Shall we start with Sam and see what coping mechanisms he has chosen this week? I have to say that one thing that I really noticed this time around with Sam is that he's really bad at boundaries. And I know that we've sort of like circled around this discussion for a while now, and I think that it's really time that we have it, because every time that Dean is trying to cope with anything at all, Sam always tells him that he's not right in in doing that. He's drinking, well, that's not a good way to cope. He's sleeping around, well, that's not a good way to cope. He's eating, well, that's not a good way to cope either. And now he's throwing himself into work, well, that's not a good way to cope. Only way it seems that Sam thinks is a good way to cope with challenges is to talk about your trauma and preferably with Sam. 
But the thing is, we've seen Dean deal with difficult situations, and he usually needs to create like some distance, either with drinking, eating, or sleeping around, or even overworking, before he can actually talk about it. And he always does end up talking about it. He like literally just opened up to Sam about hell in the last episode. Like, Sam! Let the man work and temporarily forget about this for a second. And I'm not saying that long-term drinking, eating, or working your feelings away is a quote-unquote good strategy, but I just think that Sam could give Dean a little bit more time and space for him to get to a place where he can talk and process. You know, it's really funny that you use that line that Sam is bad at boundaries, And it feels like one of those moments where it's like you said it and I had like a vivid flashback to so many moments of the Sam trying to get Dean to talk and how often it really was Sam overstepping boundaries because he thought he knew what was needed or thought he knew better. And it's just like that moment when you like you I put the two puzzle pieces together and suddenly see the picture and I'm like, oh, yes, Sam does this a lot. Honestly, when I realized that watching this episode, I was like, how many times on this podcast have we been like, Dean, you need to talk to your brother, which is true. Empirically, it's true. You need to talk to your brother. But how many of those times is like, is it Sam pushing for this when Dean just needs to get there on his own terms? And then like, there's even been like to go the extreme. There's the times where Dean finally does have his breakthrough moments, talk to Sam, and Sam's like, no, it's too late. I'm mad at you now. You didn't talk to me when I wanted you to talk to me. You had to cope with it for a bit yourself before talking to me. I don't like that. Like, wag my finger in disappointment at the tallest beam. You know, we've had this conversation, and I think that it was really necessary. But for the rest of the episode, he's really good about it. You know, like, he gives space and time and he's like, even when Dean is sensitive about stuff, like he kind of like lets him be, sen- lets him be sensitive, you know? He's like, oh, I didn't mean it when, when he's saying, oh, it, you know, they've lived through hell. And Dean is like, Wah. he's like, I- I'm sorry. Like he gives that space during the episode and he's really good about it. So I'm kind of wondering if he maybe was only saying this because he was like tired or hungry or just grumpy, like we've seen Sassy Sam and I'm sort of wondering if this isn't it a little bit. And he does a great job too at the end of the episode, once Dean does open up to him, at just like receiving the information and holding space for him. You're talking about giving Dean his space and I'm trying to think, have we ever really seen Sam like fully give space and give Dean the room he needs to cope and deal with things himself? And I think it's the episode where they had the healthiest relationship in like all season was monster movie. They are so healthy. The two of them, they're like, yeah, they're they're having a drink. They're having like there's not anything like ridiculous about the level of coping. It's just getting away from it all and being happy for a bit before coming back to reality and being ready to tackle the problems. Like Sam knows how to do this. And I I wonder how much of it is like a plot device. And if that's the case, then I don't think that it's doing a service to Sam's character. Because like you said, Sam knows how to do this. We've seen him do this. We see him do this in this episode. You're right. I kind of feel the side of this just being like conflict for conflict's sake from like a writing perspective. 
but like in universe, it really it just it it hurts Sam's image because we've seen him do this right before. They can't do my tallest bean wrong like this. I disagree. <laughs> Remove from canon. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one thing that I I sort of want us to to take away from this is that like sometimes maybe it's okay to let people cope, quote unquote, unhealthily to give them the time and space to do that, to just kind of accept that. Giving someone the room they need, even if the thing they are choosing to do isn't the best for them in that moment, when it becomes every night, that's a new issue to worry about. Right. I think that that's a whole other thing because then the coping mechanism impacts the 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 quality of life. And that's a whole other discussion, in my opinion. But, you know, I think... Dean literally lived through hell, literally, 40 years of it. And so... Like, I might be misquoting it here, but I feel like at the beginning of this episode, when Sam's, like, half asleep in the back of a car, he says, like, you know, I think he, like, specifies how many cases or days it's been. And, like, it doesn't hit me right now because I feel like it wasn't a huge number. It was, like, three cases, maybe. Unless these were like month long cases, like not taking a break seems OK. And I think it goes even further to show that this is such a out of syncness between the two of them. It was only a season ago that it was the roles being reversed where Dean was coping with his, you know, literal time limit by looking for a chance to connect with his brother and relax and take a break. And Sam was the one who refused to stop and take that break and was coping with it by overworking. We literally had this exact moment role reversed a season ago. And I think this just goes a long way to show how this season and for the most part, I mean, Monster Movie being my big exception, they've really had this out of sync between the two of them. You start all the way back with, you know, Sam and Ruby getting together and him looking into his powers and now Dean having to deal with the fact that he was in hell and he's back and there's angels and there's all this new information they're really still towing the line of we're brothers and we're in this together, but it really feels like the choices they're making now are almost opposite each other without ever being like huge clashing moments. It just feels like they're really not on the same page at all times. Yeah. And this is something I think that we've seen sort of a Bruin since mid season three about, the show doesn't do this often, but it's surprisingly subtle until you really take a look at it. I will be honest, this is not the kind of thing I thought about in the moment. It really took me reflecting on the episode as we do in preparation for these recordings to really make that realization of like, oh, this is such a weird like role reversal where, you know, you've now got Dean and Sam shoes and vice versa in the overworking versus needing to take a break. Would you like to get us started on Dean? Dean's predicament is very much displayed this week. He's trying to cope with what he has done in hell. Uh, we learn how much worse it really was last episode with the actually taking part in the torturing. And I mean, I know we learned even more this week beyond that, which is another bucket of worms. I feel like, and I know I just watched Moon Knight, so it's fresh on the mind right now. In the Egyptian afterlife, there is this concept of weighing one's soul to, you know, see if you are just the idea that, you can do so much good to outweigh all the evil in your life. Dean is literally going on a rampage of solving problems and saving people. And 
it's kind of interesting because it never feels like his goal is to undo what was done. I think he truly knows that can never happen. Almost in the way he was so reckless last season with trying to do do good and let his own life kind of hang in the wind because he knew he had a time timer over his head. It's the reverse now where he has the second chance to use it for as much good as possible, even if it never rebalances the scales that he at least knows he did as good as he could on Earth while he could. It feels a lot like atonement to me. That's exactly the word we're looking for there. He is looking to atone for what he did in hell. And I I still feel like as much as that's what his goal is, he knows he'll never get there. And I think it's even more evident in the moment when Ted is killed because it eats at him so much. I think the show also makes a a really big point and a big show of showing that Ted is an asshole. Mm hmm. And that Dean still feeling feels incredibly responsible for him and, you know, is is almost like ready to harm him for him to stay alive. Like he's ready to go to any length to be able to save him. And unfortunately, he can't do that. Like even beyond the Ted thing, like he's just sensitive to everything around him. There's an expression in French that that says a fleur de peau, which literally translated means like the flower of the skin. And it basically means like to be extremely sensitive, like anything that touches you harms you almost. And um, it's, I mean, I guess the, the, the English, the English equivalent would be thin skinned, but like thin skinned has a very like negative connotation, which is not the case in French. It's basically just to show like a sensitivity because usually because something has harmed you and therefore you're having trouble coping with the stuff that's happening around it. There, there's like, um, cause I know that thin skinned is very like, ugh, you know, like there's a, a negative connotation to it, but in French, it's truly like, I want to envelop you in something to help you through this kind of thing. It's, it's amazing how similar the two expressions are, but it's so much like the, even just the way it's said in French makes it seem a lot more about you versus about other people's effect on you. The French version to me is is more about it is much more understanding of somebody's reality than the English version. The English version is the like the way you'd insult someone on Twitter by calling them sensitive Whereas the French version is admitting, like, I am sensitive and I need to take care of myself. And it just seems like the second that he opens, like, those floodgates and tells Sam about the torture that he received and inflicted in hell, he's, like, completely past the denial and he's skipping right to bargaining. Uh, like you mentioned, you know, maybe if I save a bunch of people, I can make up for some of what I did sort of outlook on it. And if we're going to use some uh, religious terms because of the religious voice of the show, um, I feel like he's trying to repent for his sins through martyrdom. And, you know, he's the one who's going to go into the little tiny hole in the wall where it literally smells like hell. He's the one who's going to be saving as many people as possible by putting himself between them and the murderer, you know? No, he's truly he's truly on a mission to repent. You're you could not have said it better. And the thing is, I feel like this isn't the first time that we've had this conversation about Dean because we've talked about Dean and guilt 
quite a bit in the past four seasons. And yeah, he's been like this since season one. So for me, this sort of like recontextualizes a lot when it comes to his formative experiences too. Because when I was watching this episode, I was like, oh, okay, so what he lived in hell is basically an extreme version of what he lived during his childhood and teenage years. And I'm sort of having trouble expressing this at the moment, but I, I hope I make sense. No, I, I follow it perfectly. Like, because what we're seeing now after Hell is basically the same thing that we've seen since season one. So clearly, the trauma was already there. The metaphorical similarities between what Dean did in Hell and how he is responding to it now by trying to save people, when mirrored with the way he was brought up as this Hunter uses almost a dirty word in this case that he then keeps doing it just to basically undo the harm that was put upon him. Like he literally, he, he continues to be a hunter because it's all he knows, but it's to save other people from the fate he has had to live through. And now he's doing it again by saving as many people as he can to atone for the, what he did. Oh, poor Dean. I hate this episode. <laughs> I don't know. For me, it's a it's usually a skip. This is a skip. I really like how coping was handled by the family as a unit. And I think that almost redeems it for me a little bit. Ooh, tell me more. So the family is coping with two major things one is the loss of a child i believe it's the the oldest of three has was lost i don't ever give any more detail i think it was a, dry, a car accident it was a car accident he passed in a car accident this is very much two adults who still have two children who depend on them who are clearly young enough they need to you know par- need the parents in their life dealing with this trauma it's made clear to us in the episode i believe um susan or seuss as, she, uh, as she's called admits that it nearly tore them apart, which again, this is something, this is not news to me. This is something you, I, I've heard before in these traumatic incidences. It, it makes sense. And the way they are coping with this is by trying to move somewhere new, get a fresh start and try again. Now, what I find so interesting is we now have a very, very extreme version of this now where uh, one of the children is in danger of dying Again, it kind of fits all the same criteria, but luckily this time the child doesn't die. And then finally at the end, they're asked, how are you doing? And there's that long pause and a smile. And then Seuss goes, I I can't remember her exact words, but she basically admits like they're not doing okay at all. And I think that is just so like I commend whoever put that scene together, whoever developed these characters Because that is so human. You know, it's so easy to end an episode with, like, look back at any of the other characters we've met along the show who appeared for an episode, learned about the supernatural, had their life saved and survived, which is, I'd say, 80% of episodes, really. And it's, yeah, we're fine. We have some new information, but we're going to go on living our lives happily. It's like, even if I was saved by the brothers and I know how to live with the fact that, yeah, there's terrible werewolves out there and vampires and other monsters and I had to watch one of them get murdered in front of me 
I would not be okay. I might be alive, but I'd be traumatized for a few months, if not years. So to finally have human beings on this show respond like humans to me is so, I feel like I'm saying it a little bit. It's so human. It's so real. We're literally seeing them in the midst of this, right? We didn't really see them as they were trying to deal with their oldest's death, but we're seeing them deal with things that are very concrete during the episode. So like when the daughter like gets her fingers licked by not Buster uh, and the son just basically goes, and she's, she's understandably freaking out. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like she's actually being quite calm about this whole thing. If it was me, I would be like, yeah, screaming. And the son goes, Oh, it's the girl in the walls. <gasps> I mean, that is your definition of rolling with the punches. Like just the way they roll with it, the way there is so much humanity in these four humans that is like jarring when compared to other characters. We needed to see Dean interacting with very flawed human beings. And I think that we got that in, in the best way. Well, hopefully we continue our uh, best view of this uh, content by moving into critical time. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it again just because I want it on the record. Did not love this episode. I'm getting the vibe. You clearly it's a skip for you. And I honestly, if I were doing a full series rewatch, this would be a skip for me, too, I believe. But I still feel it. It had some really powerful points. And like I really ranted about the family at the end. I'm really excited to know who was behind this. So this episode was written by Jeremy Carver and directed by Phil Scritchia. A, a couple of names I'm happy to hear almost every time. You know, I think that the, to me, there's also a difference between something that I can appreciate and analyze and, and enjoy in that sense, but also be like, I didn't like it. <laughs> and I feel I do this with food. I do this with art. Like sometimes I see something and I appreciate it. I just don't like it. Oh, yeah. Uh, if there is one of those, like, the weird things you, like, picked up in school that were never really, like, obvious till years later, it is my ability to watch any film now. Because no matter how much I don't care about the movie, like, I've watched horror movies where I'm, like, 20 minutes in and I'm like, oh, this is literal trash. And I can just turn on, like, film student mode, which sounds so douchey. I'm so sorry to say those words. But I can suddenly watch a movie and be like, OK, lighting and scene and direction and camera angles and like mechanically and effects. And like, what was the movie about? Oh, some dude killed some kids at a summer camp. I don't know. But like when they shot this scene, like I can get into that mode and enjoy it again. This is one of those episodes where like, yeah, the story was. Eh, but like the bits that were good were good. Oh yeah, for sure. Like the, the part about Dean, the smelling, like the smell thing, I think is going to stay with me because it's not something I had noticed before. No, it's a powerful one for sure. Yeah. Would you like to lead us into your lore? Oh, let's go. I am afraid of a monster. It's camouflage is perfect and virtually undetectable. It attacks, sometimes with no warning and no specific target in mind. Other times, other times it's very selective in its prey to the point 
its actions can be somewhat tracked and predicted. It has access to many powers to do terrible deeds. It can even destroy you without ever meeting you. I am afraid of a monster, and this one can be anyone. This monster may be your neighbor, or even someone you call a friend. I am afraid of humans. I went a little more poetic this week. Um, I don't know, this one kind of hit me and like really had a poemy vibe to it, so I sort of went with what I had. There really, I guess, I didn't really have much lore to go off this week, because again, this really is just another case of how terrible humans can be. And I, again, I want to really make sure that we zoom out a moment and realize that though they were the monster of the week, they were the byproduct of a bigger monster. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. We live in a world where, especially in the recent years, we've seen how awful humans can be in a lot of ways. And I think throughout history, that's been obvious. And we're living through a new wave of it now, unfortunately. I don't think that humans are worse now than they were before. I think that we've always been pretty awful and and pretty amazing. I agree. I think we're just seeing a current uptake in some of those things recently that are helping people who may have only ever read about it in books see it a little more uh, firsthand, unfortunately. You know, a lot of people are like, but there's war now. And I'm like, there's always been war. It's just that you weren't on the receiving end of it. And now you are. And so. Any thoughts for this week? I do. I would like to talk about Sam a little bit more than I have already blabbered on about him. And the reason I bring this up is because I don't know if this is a narrative thing or a critical thing. And maybe like you and our listeners can sort of help me figure this out. And especially seeing as we've talked about how Sam, you know, there may have been, Sam may have been used as a plot device a a lot more in this particular episode. Because throughout this week's episode, Sam says a few times that the children in the walls are barely human. And I have some thoughts about that, as you would expect. Because if we look at this purely narratively, it's really surprising to me that Sam, of all people, would be saying that they're barely human. Like he's trying to strip them away from their humanity when they literally don't have any kind of supernatural powers. Uh, unlike someone who has demon blood in him or someone who can exercise demons with his mind or someone who used to have telekinetic powers and psychic powers. So yeah, I am talking about you, Sam Winchester. <laughs> Like, he's been so invested in finding the humanity in everybody, and we've seen that particularly with Max in Nightmare and Jack in Metamorphosis. And both of these characters arguably weren't completely human because of their supernatural powers. But these kids are 100% human. And like you said, the reason why they are what they are is because of an arguably bigger monster. So either we're learning something very important about Sam's worldview shifting here, or we're learning something very important about the worldview of the writer's room. And seeing as I I can't find an answer with just what I have on hand, I guess it's something that I want to keep an eye out for in the next few episodes. You know, I didn't even put that together. I know earlier in this episode, I did mention how it felt weird that 
like I, I kind of almost expect them to be killed. These two literal children by by something other than one of the human characters physically ending their lives, which happens to both of them. I expected some kind of like, you know, one of those. I hate to use the word, but like kooky moments where something goes wrong and one of them like falls in a pit or the other one like impales themselves in a fight or something like where it's clearly not one of the brothers or one of the other like main characters who has to do it. I feel like this is something and I lean to the critical side of it. And again, I think tracking this will be something we'll have to do for that reason, where this is the writer's way of being like, oh, it's okay that we killed them. They're not humans. Yeah, and if that's the case, then I have trouble with that because these children were human. The The girl is killed by the father in an act of saving his wife and daughter. It, it does not sit well with me, but it sits better than Dean shooting the other one just in a moment of like a fight. No, but I'm not arguing that they were killed, okay? Like, I, I understand in-world, in-universe, whatever. Like, that I understand. What I morally object to is the stripping away of their humanity. But that's just it. I wonder if both of them were killed by neither Sam nor Dean. Would the writers have still put that line in? What I'm trying to say is that I'm okay with them having killed them. But I wish that they had reflected on that more. Like, I wish that they had understood these were human beings. And Dean understands that. But Sam is trying to make him feel better. And so he's trying to erase that. And that's my issue. I don't really, like, we're going to see them kill humans a lot in the next few, like, the next decade, literally. So, like, uh, for me, that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is really the the wiping away of their humanity because of the way that they lived and because of the things that have been inflicted onto them. Like literally when he's when when Dean is being like brought down into the hatch, into the dumbwaiter hatch, like you can see that there are like claw marks that they're trying to get out. Like, I'm sorry, but this is like these kids were literally tortured and were holding them responsible for that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't love it. You're right. The important detail is the stripping away of their humanity, not a writer's reason for doing it. It's that it was done. And you're right. It's it's ultimately what it comes down to. And I don't even know why I was trying to the other side of the, the conversation. But you're right. It really comes down to just this like this unnecessary dialogue that puts the blame on them more than anything else. Yeah. That's exactly it. Thank you. Thank you. On the note of smarter people saying things, I would love to hear what the community has to say to me. This week, we have a message from L. Yeah, like the letter L. But before we read it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. Where do you see coping in Supernatural? So far, please be careful with spoilers for Drew. Do you think that Sam was just grumpy when he told Dean that he needed to talk to him? Or to respond to anything else that we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. L writes, Hello. 
I hope this is the right way to reach you guys, Drew and Mary. I hate leaving voicemails, so I thought I could just shoot you an email. And that's totally fine. Side note. I go by L, by the way. Been listening to the podcast for a while, but I felt really compelled to write in because of the last episode, because I felt like you guys were right on the cusp of talking about something, but just didn't get there. I loved the discussion of masks in the episode. Like Drew, I also think of Phantom of the Opera whenever the word masquerade comes up. Such a catchy song. And following the discussions of shapeshifters, along into discussions of performative masculinity. So true, besties. So true. (laughs) So... I want to hear your thoughts on how the episode ends. It's a bit odd, lol. In an episode about playing homage to classic monster movies and the subject of monstrosity and shape-shifting and wearing a mask slash costume, being fake, question mark? The episode ends with Dean reminiscing, it would be nice if life were simple like the movies. I mean, it worked out nice enough for them this time around. Got the girl, and that beauty killed the beast. But Dean, Mr. Horror Movie Lover, says he wouldn't pick this Abbott and Costello meet the monsters crap. Too schlocky? Of course. Dean will get to live his 80s slasher movie dream in the distant future. And isn't it so cute that, spoiler, Henry took John to see Abbott and Costello meet the mummy as a kid and he got scared? SPN is one layered onion. Editorial note? That might be a spoiler. Drew doesn't get it. I don't know, I'm assuming Henry's a dog again. Same rule. Anyhow, Sam... Having some keen insight into Dean for once, lol, sees past the mask and says he knows exactly what movie Dean would choose to live in. Porky's 2. And not being a Gen Xer or Boomer, I had no idea what that movie is. Just that it sounds like what it is. A screwball comedy from a bygone era. Maybe even a sex comedy? I mean, Porky, come on. But because I got the supernatural brain rot real bad, I eventually watched Porky's 2. Without watching the first one? And I don't know if you guys have seen it or if you want to, but I'd be interested in hearing an analysis of the particular movie choice from two intelligent people like you guys. The TLDR of the movie? Local Christian group wants to shut down high school Shakespeare play of A Midsummer Night's Dream because of cross-dressing and an interracial kiss. Enlist the help of the KKK on the other side. The students try to enlist the help of a politician who turns out to be shady. The day is won by pranking and humiliating pedophile politician and publicly shaming the KKK with the help of Native American community and Jewish community. So yeah, a bit to unpack there. Would love to hear back from you guys. Stay frosty. L. I looked up what Porky's 2 was about, and because I I read this synopsis and the story, I was like, I feel like I need to see this to be able to really talk about it. Did you watch it? No, I haven't watched it. Note to self, add that to the list of things to watch on the Discord server. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like this is definitely something that we have to do because I, so again, I knew that this was happening and I was like, I don't know exactly how this fits into Dean's character. Thank you for writing into that. And I like to just remind people that if you are not comfortable uh, sharing your voice vocally over a recording, An email like this is always okay. We're happy to read it on your behalf if that's what makes it easier for you. We don't want to basically deny anyone their opinion just because they're not comfortable speaking to a microphone. That's totally fine. But I do want to respond to this and say, uh, funny enough, I laughed at the Porky's 2 joke at the end of the episode because I've only ever known Porky's 2 kind of as the punchline as a cultural touchstone. I feel like I feel like if I really went 
and dug through it. I could find a Simpsons episode. I feel like there was another movie a while back where that was referenced. If not, even I think Bill and Ted have that reference to it at some point. And it's always sort of just written off as like my mental image of this movie is always just like a comedy where it's like lighthearted and pranky, I guess, kind of the same like premise I had in my mind where like it it suffers from that same problem of like an old 80s movie where like the jokes don't really age well type thing. Yeah, that's kind of also what I had in mind. And I was like, mm, I don't know. But I knew that for Sam to bring it up this way and for Dean to react that way, there was something more. Because again, right, that episode was about masquerading. It was about masks. It was about hiding. And, and like Al reminded us, you know, the mask of masculinity. So what does this say about Dean that his, his movie in this particular case is Porky's too? I don't know. I, I think I think we need to watch it. Elle, I think you have um, <laughs> made us realize something that we, we need to do in order to understand Dean better. And I am making a statement here, which everyone can hold me to. Until I see Porky's 2 officially, I may change my mind. But at this moment, I am choosing to believe this is total implied headcanon now for me. This is not Dean's movie choice. He accepts it when Sam suggests it. Because he feels like it better suits him in the eyes of his little brother. And the reality is there's another movie he would have chosen instead. Interesting. I would have seen it the other way around where he would have named something else. And then that is the real one because Sam actually knows him better than he lets on. Ooh, interesting. We'll have to compare once we've seen the movie. But I almost like the the like the the comic book image I have of this is. Dean, like, reaching into his pocket to pull out, like, a picture or a DVD case, and then Sam going, oh, you mean this? And handing him a literal Dean mask that says Porky's 2 on, and he goes, oh, yeah, totally what I meant. Nothing else would have been a right fit for me. And then, like, secretly Pride and Prejudice is sitting in his bag or something. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. We'll have to watch Porky's 2 now, which is a thing I never thought I would say to you in my life. What have we gotten ourselves into? Elle, thank you so much for sending us this email. Um, we, we, we definitely appreciated it. And now we have one more thing on our to-do list. Let's go to our reflections and our calls to action. Right away with this one kind of went for what I really felt was the a very underlying sentiment in this episode, and that was fear and how fear can be a huge turn for many people. It can stop you from doing what you want to, uh, you know, while the children were living in the walls and knew a whole different level of fear and led them to do much worse things because of their circumstances. It's just so easy to find you yourself being afraid of things and it can lead out to you on missing out on so much in life. So, my call to action this week, for myself at least, is to not let fear stand in my way. Oh my, that is a, a wow. <laughs> okay. I think that sounds really big. And I think when you hear that, your like first instinct is like, I'm afraid of heights, but I'll jump out of an airplane. I'm also looking at the small things of like, you know, I want to invest in my other personal projects, which require some time and effort and I'm afraid of failure, but you know what? I've got to push through and try anyways. I can't believe I'm going to talk about Taylor Swift, but uh, that's the whole point of, of Taylor Swift talking about being fearless. It's 
she's saying that it's not about not having fear. It's about doing things in spite of being fearful of them. I'm just going to take this moment and cherish the fact that you related me to Taylor Swift in this way. And I'm just going to let it flutter in my heart for a little while. But I will ask you to please share with us what you have for this week. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. I want to go back to our discussion about the humanity of the children. I just think that seeing any human as unhuman or subhuman is a very slippery slope. Every human, no matter the horrible things that they are or that they did, is human. And to me, that's a reminder that humanity does have that kind of darkness inside of it. And that darkness is a part of every one of us. And this is really what the episode is about. It reminds us that what Dean did in hell is quintessentially human. And so I feel called from this reflection today to pay particular attention to when the show talks about the limits of humanity from now on, because this was really jarring to me. Even the darkest parts of humanity are still human, which is which is terrifying. But I mean, it's 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 what you need to reckon with to be able to move on. But that's that's kind of the thing about humanity. We are capable of the worst and we're capable of the best. And most of us lie somewhere in the middle. But the extremes are also very human. There is no such thing as an unhuman human. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Figueroa, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. And this week, we'd like to thank Elle for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. And I'm Marifiku. <laughs> You're who? <laughs> I am who?